Hello, friends. Welcome to Mental Radio. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman. On uh, on this episode, we go back to what seems like now another world six months ago. Um, when COVID hit, we took a little break, did a little pivot uh, on Mental Radio and brought on Dr. Broderick Sawyer for a little support. We have a couple of special episodes that we didn't get to that are um, really great, great conversations. This one's a real special one uh, with my friend Colin Frangicetto. Uh, very, very sweet man, very insightful individual. He, uh, he plays in the band Circa Survive, which a lot of people know and love. And he is also an incredible fine artist. I've got uh, a couple of his pieces in my house um, here. And uh, he's got a great story about holistic recovery and uh, integrating psychedelics into talk therapy um, and other types of therapy and growing up and coming of age as an artist and what recovery looks like still surviving as an artist um, in this day and age. So before we get to Colin, uh, please know nothing on the podcast is medical advice or medical care. You've got to talk to your mental health care professional before making any changes to your treatment plan whatsoever. Um, yeah, and if you want to see what we're doing, check us out, mentalhealthmedia.org, where you can support the project and check us out and see what we're doing. That said, thanks everybody for listening. And here, that was Basho the Therapy. Basho, you already had your own episode. You can't be on this one. You can't be on this one. Well, now he's going to leave because he's cranky about that. So we'll uh, let Basho leave and we will bring on Colin Frangicetto. Hey, Colin. Thanks for being on Mental Radio today. Hi. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So, um, for our listeners who don't uh, who don't know you, tell us a little bit about who you are and and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Colin. I am a artist, and I'm a musician. <laughs> I I do lots of things. I think um, I try to figure out a good, concise way to answer this question all the time, mm-hmm. and. Usually it winds up in me doing this thing where I'm like, oh, wait, I didn't I didn't say this thing or that thing. But ultimately, I think most people know me uh, as the guitarist of a band called Circa Survive. And mm-hmm. um, over the past decade or so, I've been uh, doing a lot of visual art, painting, drawing, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then recently I became a podcaster. So I, I'd say those are my three main gears that I operate in, um, at least professionally. Uh, I am a lot more than that, of course, but as we all are, yeah, there's the cliff notes, I guess (laughs) bullet points, (laughs) not even cliff notes. Bullet points are important for the, uh, for this, uh, for this age, um, for For sure. sure. And we would never reduce you to those things, but, uh, just so we know who we have, uh, an idea who we're talking to. Um, it's always good to start there. And, uh, you know, I can't help but feel you're being a little bit humble with your band, which is like a big deal. <laughs> That's what everyone always says. But I, I, you know, people don't understand how often I run into people who don't know the band and how over the years, you know, you just really, <laughs> you start to want to avoid those awkward moments where you presume someone knows the band and they don't. And, and then it's just this, this whole embarrassing, 
um, moment where you're like, oh, yeah, I totally just presumed you would know and you don't. And so now I just always presume that people don't know. And Mm -hmm. um, it just makes my life a lot easier. And it it sort of is like if people want to know, they'll ask if they already know. They don't usually do much unless they're like a super fan in which then it just becomes a party and we just have a really great conversation super easily. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of thing where like if, if people like assume that if you're a successful creative person, you're like, if there's like you go, eh, thank you, Basho. Oh, hi, baby. Yeah. Here's the boy. He See, I start talking and then he wants to talk to me because I'm talking. Otherwise he wouldn't be talking, but he says, Oh, you're talking to the wall. What's going on? I'm oh, right we here. All gotta talk. Are you looking for me? Um, but yeah, there seems to be like this kind of idea. If you're not in the arts that that it goes from like, you know, open mic night to like Jay-Z selling out MSG for five nights in a row. (laughs) Like there's like, Mm -hmm. sometimes people don't get that. It's like, yeah, there's distinction in, in this thing. And, but you know, from my perspective, and I think anybody really in the arts that, you know, outside of that Jay-Z level, it's so hard. It's such a grind, no matter what you're doing in this day and age, that it is such a success to be able to have a fulfilling career and, you know, independently and make this thing work. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I got respect for everybody. I don't care if you're like a, someone in the backup <laughs> dancers, a Britney Spears or like whatever. Not, not that I wouldn't say that your band is much better than that, but you know, just anyone in this grind. Damn. Hey, yeah (laughs) no i feel you and i totally agree and i think i i've come to really love operating in this uh liminal zone you know being in a place where yes i'm in a band that tours in a tour bus and sells out large venues but you most likely wouldn't recognize any of us on the street perhaps our singer but usually not and then um beyond that you know we just we just sort of blend right in and we've never had this majorly, you know, we've never had a smash single or, or been on MTV every five seconds. And, and I think for some people it's hard for them to, to understand my existence without that narrative. So, Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but for me, it's actually made for a really interesting, a really interesting journey. And, Ultimately, I think a lot of the, a lot of that that other extreme that I sort of noted notated that we are not leads to an isolated existence, a more isolated existence than than I would want. So I'm I'm always a, a little bit grateful for that. You you're grateful for the isolation. Oh no no! I'm a little bit grateful for that. I don't have to have that isolation. That oh, say someone someone who has a smash oh, single yeah. and is on MTV every five seconds and is recognized in the grocery store. And I think you know, not that I don't get recognized in the grocery store once in a while, but it's a very uh, different interaction than someone someone like you know uh, Bono <laughs> would, would have. For sure. For sure. That's actually how I uh, started hanging out with Sean Dunn, by the way, is recognizing him in a grocery store. So it's funny that you say that. I like literally chased him down in his local grocery store. I'm like, oh, you're Sean Dunn. I had a screening with you. And he was like so freaked out. Uh, <laughs> I love that. And knowing Sean, like I can, I can just imagine the, the reaction. And it just makes me so happy to think yeah, about that, was, that moment. 
it was before his transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, I can imagine it either way. That's the funny thing because that that part of Sean is still there. You know, the part that's just like really freaked out by people who love what he does, um, and and it's a great part too. You know, it's really mm-hmm. like it's like something that I completely identify with and understand. Just that what what you want to talk to me like that like okay something must be wrong with you then if if i'm the guy that you want to talk to <laughs> it is you know? it is kind of strange because they're like we don't really have an archetype for it it's like you're famous or you know that's it and anything in between they're like work like the reality of what like what being a working professional is or I mean, Mm -hmm. even with actors, like most people don't know that most actors are broke, you know, and that most of us even like successful in the documentary field, everybody does something else. Like everyone, unless you're like Morgan Spurlock or uh, Michael Moore or uh, maybe there's one, but like after like the top three, you know, you're directing commercials or reality shows or, you know, making corporate videos for the bank or, you know, that's just that's just the grind. That's how it goes or, or driving a cab. Really? You know, there's people that do that too, or sure. Um, people don't really know what it is, but then, you know, but I, I think, you know, for us on the other side of it, that makes us a little too humble because I mean, I honestly, like I think Sean and Cass's films, I think they're going to be in the documentary textbooks. Um, Me too. you know, like that there's nothing, no one does what they do. And, um, yeah, I really see them in, you know, that canon of contemporary uh, documentary and whatever it becomes, I think they will have a, uh, you know, their flavor will be in it. Um, yeah, it's it's so funny because every time I try to explain them to other people, I, it's like I have this moment where I'm like, oh my God, they're films because I I love their podcast so much and and I love them as people so much and then i completely forget to mention that they have these extremely beautiful documentaries that are you know totally free and also just so unique in in vibe and and pacing and the way that they frame their subjects and just everything is just so wonderful about their documentary and i think that's their their most accessible point (laughs) but for whatever reason you know when i first am starting to give other people the download of sean and cass and very ape it's like the last thing i get to and then i'm like oh my god just go right to their films just go here and watch this and then you'll realize why you have to know these people and why they're so great i think most people have seen so if people don't know uh cass greener and sean dunn very ape um productions um they made the films American Juggalo, which I think like is the most viral documentary of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, Oxiana, which was a Tribeca film festival hit. Um, Florida Man, which was another viral monstrosity that just took over the internet. And then there's like a lot of other smaller films. Um, the film that I had a film that debuted with Sean, um, he was his first movie, The Bowler, which was like one of the first movies that we saw that was shot on like a large sensor camera. And it had that big feel, you know, in the early 2010s or late 2000, like maybe it was 2000, it might have been 2009. But it was like yeah. just around that time where it was like this bit, this documentary that it felt like you're shooting on film again. 
Or not, yeah. it wasn't the bowler. I'm sorry. The bowler was after it. It was the collector with the record collector guy. Mm, um, right, 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 right. And that was, an, that was the first viral sensation because people just saw that and they're like, oh my God, this is film. Film is on the internet. Finally, people had been like waiting so long for film for for that creativity in the internet to like break and then finally it did with this film that it really felt like art for the first time on the internet and you know it right. bl- it broke the internet bef- you know before there was an internet to break <laughs> um and it just kind of went on from there so so yeah um, praise be praise be um <laughs> So, yeah, you know, so we're in this world. People are starting to come out of the mental health closet in that kind of visible, you know, celebrity space, kind of. But they don't really get to the messy details and they don't really talk about what they do. And then there's all of us that are kind of in this work, you know, in the working class kind of. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, the working artist um, level of creativity. And we're all out here like we're ready. We're, we're dealing with shit. We're overcoming stuff. We're sharing our stories. So, you know, that's why I like having a lot of us on because we're all making great stuff. We're all working on work that people know, or at least some people know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been to the dark side and come out the, the other side. Or, or some of us just deal with kind of chronic whatever, and we have ways of dealing with it. Right. Um, so, you know, what, what about you? How did you... You know, you have your own mental health kind of journey. Where yeah. where would you say that that journey started for you? <clears throat> um, you know, in a lot of ways, it started pretty young for me. It started pretty early, and I was blessed to have parents who, you know, both uh, you know, masters in psychology and. Uh, my mom was a social worker, is a social worker, but now she's more of a um, more of a manager than anything else because she she's like you know she's just done the good work for so long that eventually she found herself at the top of the mountain uh, telling other people how to do it. But um, you know, so she's been doing nonprofit um, stuff for a very long time, and then my my dad was a a professor of psychology uh, up until a few years back when he retired. So. Both of them had this psychology background, and I think uh, my mom, especially working with people one on one or you know working with families she she definitely exposed me to a lot of people early on in my life that gave me sort of an idea of where I landed in the spectrum of um you know i guess just being lucky about circumstance, if you will and and seeing the wide range of, of just of things that we all deal with, um, and I think I don't know if uh, compassion is a taught thing. I think I think to a, an extent it is, but um, yeah. So so very young, I, I was I was sort of given the gift of uh, of exposure to to just a wide variety of uh, of people and ailment and i think i i instantly was attracted to helping others and you know my dad being a a professor and also you know before that he was a therapist you know so um there just was a lot there already for me education wise i felt like they they really they placed an emphasis on on compassion and and 
I think, um, intellectual understanding of of uh, the human experience and and the psyche. So, all that's to say, it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> because you get to you know your 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 adolescence and. I think for me, the first time I really was struggling with like suicidal ideation, I was probably 13, you know, and, and I think it was a really difficult thing for me to grasp and really untangle from, there are all these things I obviously love, there are all these things about life that really give me joy, but yet at the same time, I'm faced with this strange emotional void on on a daily basis and and sometimes things that seemed very simple for other people um at least from my perspective you know simple things like just dealing with um rejection or or just um struggling with a task struggling in school i think the fear of failure that comes along with all this stuff all of that became extra emotionally challenging for me uh, when I was when I was pretty young, and at the same time, it felt challenging to express that and communicate that to other people. Um, I'm not sure if this comes along with being uh, the oldest of three and just wanting to be strong for my siblings, wanting to be, a, you know a leader or just someone who has it has their shit together as you know my parents always came off very together to me so i wanted to to mimic that so there was this cognitive dissonance that i dealt with a lot when i was younger just feeling sort of a mess internally but wanting to present this other thing outside and so you know i think um early experiences with guidance counselors and uh a few compassionate teachers and and then some therapists um you know and then of course my my parents too you know eventually i I would hit breaking points where i would just get overwhelmed and be extra sad and just have to actually talk to them about this uh you know it just became this thing that i dealt with for a long time oh i just have uh depressive tendencies you know or i I, I'm I'm extra sensitive, you know. All these things of, you know, I never got a proper diagnosis um, besides attention deficit. That was something I got got that got that diagnosis, but um, everything else seemed to sort of elude me. I think I think uh, on big part that I I wasn't that communicative about it, and I really wasn't comfortable admitting it at that time. You know that it was a struggle constantly, so. That's a long answer to your to your question of where did my mental health journey begin, but um, I'd say it began there. I mean, that's interesting. Like, so did you, what? What did you think when you had that? Because you had this basis growing up of uh, of psych- psychological language and th- you know mm-hmm. the language of therapy, just kind of growing up. So when you you know were a young adolescent and you were having those feelings, did you know what you were feeling? Like, did you automatically? Um, understand that you were experiencing something that your parents were trained in in helping with. No, no, definitely not. I think, I think in a lot of ways, 
I almost was like busy gaslighting myself, you know, all, all the time, sort of telling myself that, and and not in any like very direct memorable way that I can recall, but I just get this overall sense that in a lot of ways I didn't believe my own symptoms. I didn't believe my own feelings. And, and maybe that was, um, a part of me that just wanted to be strong and refused to admit that I had things that I needed help with or that I needed to understand on a deeper level. Um, but there was a, a denial of it that went on for a long time and, and it was confusing. It was really confusing. Um, because there was always, well, first of all, just being 13, 14, 15, like the, this age is so crazy for so many people. And I was not, I was, I, I didn't get the worst of it, but I also didn't get the best of it. You know, I, I, I had a lot of struggles with friend groups and getting picked on, getting made fun of, getting sort of, um, ostracized, getting, you know, becoming an, out, an outcast and, um, sort of just finding my way however I could you know when I think about the brutality of a lot of my experiences as a young person uh with with peers I'm kind of astounded that I was able to withstand it and not completely collapse because I I just have these distinct memories of just absolute cruelness from from other kids you know and then at times cruelness from adults too but um I I think in a lot of ways it w- it wasn't the it wasn't the uh the early psychology education or even the access to my parents that really saved me at the, at this time it was it was uh at first it was story it was the hero's journey archetype of all of the storybooks and movies uh and and, and television shows that I was obsessed with as a, as a young person and really identifying as my own, as the hero in my own story, and seeing, and seeing through this lens of like, you know, there's all this stuff out there to to conquer and withstand, and that's on me to do that. So there was there was that as well, you know, like I had this part of me that was extra sensitive and sort of getting crushed down by the world and feeling very sad that I. I didn't. I didn't feel welcomed by the by the friends that I was trying to make, and I didn't really have attention from girls in the way that I wanted, and so all of that. But then juxtaposed with this, uh, I guess grit is what I would call it. You know, just mm-hmm. this ability to keep going and 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 honestly, not get deterred. You know, I would just keep trying to 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 woo the girls that i was crushing on no matter how how many times they would you know react extremely harshly and 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 break my heart into a million pieces or or like try to make the friends that i wanted to make no matter how many times i was made fun of or told i couldn't sit there you know um i don't know how i persevered but i kept going like most of us do i presume most people uh, with the exception of those who maybe have that, you know, they just get lucky and they're just in that that golden circle of popular kids or whatever. But most people I know, in hindsight, when we talk about it, had had a rough time um, coming up. So, so yeah, I think 
beyond what I just described, like the the story archetype and and all of that helping me, and and you know the fantasy of story helping me escape. I think this was right around the time where music and art came in pretty heavily as um, an outlet for for a lot of these feelings and there was this identity that i saw that that fit me as much as anything else um as as much as anything could you know it wasn't like i was this perfect fit but you know i think i saw the doors around this time really young and just identified with that sensitive um poet type like the the jim morrison you know outcast um uh poetically minded person I saw myself in in him or in that character that cut out, you know, played by Val Kilmer <laughs> in the movies. Mm-hmm. But that that really gave me a, a map or like a blueprint, if you will, of oh, you know what? I think it's okay that I'm weird, and I, maybe I should just double down on that. Maybe I should just embrace that and um, and seek seek out what's uh, on the other side of that. And I think I got some extra incentive when um a friend of mine i think i was probably 12 at this point uh i went to hang out with him he was sort of like this popular kid who seemed like he was just sort of being nice to me to be nice i don't know why but he he started um inviting me over after school to hang out and i i went over there and his older sister was just the coolest and she was you know i just had this major crush on her and she was like sneaking out and had a fake id and was going to like club shows and she gave me this like bootleg tape of pearl jam before 10 even came out and it completely changed my life and then it wasn't so much longer between pearl jam and you were playing in you know kind of post-hardcore bands yeah yeah you know i mean to be honest i started a band maybe a year and a half after that um right as soon as i so when i found when she when i uh met her and she gave me sort of the the keys to the castle as far as underground music goes i about a year later i went to middle school and i met a bunch of other kids who liked music as much as i did and um and instantly was like oh yeah we should start a band and oh you know our originals oh god but um but we were covering every every song by every band we loved you know and it was uh probably about you know six months to a year after discovering pearl jam listening to eddie vetter do a do a um a radio takeover where he was djing and playing his favorite stuff and he played um he played a song by Fugazi, uh, mm-hmm. and and that was it. As soon as I heard that, I was like, wow. "What is this?" <laughs> you know, uh, and it was just a complete like that opened the floodgates. And I took that, I played that for my friends. I basically, you know, I went to the mall, found Fugazi, uh, and then played that for for my friends, and then ever. From that point on, we were just obsessed with Discord. We were like, you know, getting the catalogs and just trying to get every single record that they put out. And then that, of course, you know, led to us figuring out, oh my God, the guy from Fugazi had another band that's even crazier, you know, minor threat. Whoa. <laughs> and then that was just like, oh fuck, songs can be like one minute long and they can be so pissed off. And yeah, like that. 
that really just like there the road was paved for me at that point and what did that do for for your depression the suicidality to go from that alienated isolated space where you had no friends and to mm-hmm. this other world where i'm assuming you had mm-hmm. community you had a creative outlet mm-hmm. you had um i don't know there is you know uh, a politics and a reason to be around mm-hmm. and contribute to this world you know there's uh, tell me about that transition you know from yeah from one to the other well like i mean truly it felt like almost overnight that life became so worth living and so exciting and i began to embrace my my identity as as someone who just didn't didn't need validation in tradition from traditional you know um sources and and it became this self-sustaining you know self-fulfilling thing where the more I embraced that, the more I attracted the people I, I, I think I wanted in my life. And not that I didn't go through my own heartbreaks and my own struggles with, with friends. I, of course, that still came along. But this will all of a sudden, I could tell I was, I was getting closer and closer every day to finding out who I was and what my values were and, and what my place in the world could look like. And I think this was right around the time where where drug experience started to become a pretty big deal. Um, right around fourteen was when it really, um, yeah, the rubber hit the road. You know, I had about a year of experimenting with cannabis, and that was definitely really really powerful. Uh, I had a few really just hilarious uh, first experiences with, with cannabis, but um, but yeah, I I. I had my first LSD experience at 14 and wow. Yeah. And that really, that changed everything for sure. And that, that was a positive experience for you at 14. Yeah, actually it was, it was extremely positive. Uh, not to say that it didn't come al- come with some confusion. Um, but in a lot of ways it felt like I was given, it felt like a rite of passage in a lot of ways. And I think there's many reasons for that, but uh, the people that I did it with, uh, yeah, I would say that this is just random that this happened. But you know, there was this, this sense that we were, it felt like a firewalk in a lot of ways. You know, we were, we were, uh, we were very young, but there was this sense of like, there was this moment in the trip where I remember, uh, so my 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 friend's backyard once you would go through the back fence there was this little kind of corridor between that fence and the the other neighbor's fence and and that went pretty far all of the fences were, were like this in this neighborhood it was kind of like um they were like uh, apartments not really apartments i don't know how they're like duplexes i guess you could say what was um, the city or the town Oh, this is Bucks County. This is Newtown, Pennsylvania. So this is like outside of Philadelphia. And um, and they made this weird gauntlet sort of game where it was like, okay, you need to go and find yourself. And you'd go through this corridor and then you'd, you know, you go through the fence gate and then it's just pure 
blackness, you know, and there's just all these like uh, tree limbs and bushes and who knows how many insects and birds and whatever in this corridor and you just walk through it in the pitch black and eventually it spits you out into the road and then you can just circle back around. But for me, that felt like an eternity when I went through that and it felt very much like that is the moment that I felt it was like that was my bar mitzvah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, and I'm not Jewish, but all my friends around this time, um, at least the year prior to that, I went to many bar mitzvahs and I was always mm -hmm. kind of intrigued about this idea of this like coming of age, like coming, becoming a man, et cetera. And I really didn't get what that was all about, at least through any kind of, um, religious or spiritual lens. But, um, that first night tripping on LSD, going through that dark corridor, my, you know, by myself, encouraged by by others, and then received by others on the other end when I popped out. When there was like this celebration, you know, of like you made it, you know. Um, and I have to say, it was really scary. It really felt terrifying. Um, and getting through that, it's like it gave me the confidence to to meet so many other challenges that were waiting for me and it and it you know i'm thinking more on like the cellular level you know like i i wasn't having this conscious realization at the time i'm just looking back on it and recognizing that there was this definite shift after this experience and remembering that moment and just sort of presuming the effect that it must have had um is pretty profound and you know, there was a lots of other things that came along with it and it instantly sucked me in this experience, the psychedelic experience. Um, it started calling to me after that. It wasn't like I was addicted or anything. It wasn't like I was just like, you know, dropping acid every, every day or anything like that. But for that, that year I did, I did take LSD a few more times and I, I took it by myself a couple times too, because I was so intrigued by, by the things it would show me about myself and then the period afterwards where I would have this consolidation of ideas and understandings about the world and it was very you know powerful but I, I do think that it, it, for most people at 14 it's a fucking lot it's a lot to deal <laughs> with <laughs> yeah I had my I might had my first psychedelic experience at uh I'm guessing 20. I was in college. Mm. And um, when I disclosed my psychedelic use when I first entered a mental hospital, everybody started jumping around saying, oh, we figured out the the source of your mental illness. And so I really thought that for a while. But wow. now looking back on it, I was, um, been, and, and not this is not medical advice to anyone listening. And I'm sure this would be terrible. You know, you don't want to emulate what I'm doing. And for a lot of different people and a lot of different patient groups, psychedelics will make you worse. So this is not telling you to do them by any stretch of the imagination. That said, Definitely for not. me, for me, like, I was like, you know, I think, I don't think I would have ended up in the mental hospital if I was doing more psychedelics. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> because I was so busy. I was so exhausted by the time, you know, when I had my breakdown, Mm -hmm. that I was totally disconnected from myself. I had no time. I was just a workaholic. I was just so disconnected and frazzled into, into work adventure mode um, that I really wonder now. But, uh, but everything you're saying, like I can, 
I relate to so much of it because I, I also, I was in, in high school, I was bullied mercilessly, um, hit a lot, abused, punched, you know, and a lot of it was about, you know, not being manly enough and by these just horrible dudes who wanted to dominate, embarrass, humiliate people. And then I found hardcore and I Mm -hmm. found martial arts. And all of a sudden, all of these issues from the isolation and being weird and being, you know, what, you know, in any city, people don't really find me effeminate, but in Long Island, some people do, (laughs) you know, just to them, effeminate is any kind of masculinity that they don't really understand. So that kind of Jewish, you know, European, Eastern European kind of man is like, oh, I don't get that. So that must be gay and gay is bad. So I'm going to torture you Mm. kind of stuff. Um, But all of a sudden, I I went through the same kind of thing at a similar time where within a year I had friends, I had an identity, I had a reason to live. Um, I had uh, uh, creative outlets. I had other, you know, people doing creative things. Um, you know, I had dancing and movement in my life. Um, Mm. and then through that, I found martial arts. And then all of a sudden, once we had like a whole bunch of nerdy kids that knew jujitsu, there was no more bullying. (laughs) Like, right. It seemed, it seemed like in the period of like three months, Wow, that was no longer uh, a concern. And, um, so much of my own recovery has been putting that world back together, you know, not, not necessarily the, the pieces all in the same place, but so many of those elements. And I, I remember entering my, my late twenties and thinking, Oh, you know, I was a kid and I was doing all these wacky things and I kind of looked down on it a little bit. And now I have such reverence for those times and putting, mm-hmm. we, we figured out so much at such a young age of just how to, how to be alive and also how to, how to manage you know, altered moods. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we were just drawn to those spaces and they were for me, hugely therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. And I think you put an emphasis on, on, on creative acts and I, and that actually was a huge, you know, thing for me as well. And, you know, after starting a band um, very young and, and then even, even with psychedelics and, and everything coming into play, it, it, all it did was light that fire even brighter for me to, um, you know, just keep making things. And I was, I got even more obsessed with the idea of bringing things into existence. You know, first there was nothing there and then all of a sudden there was, and, and, and that was this, you know, at a certain point, I think between, um, 10 and 14, you know, there was a slow dissolve of magic in my life where all of a sudden, you know, going into the woods and imagining there was a dragon there to slay, like just wasn't working anymore. And it's like, it's not there. I don't see it. That's like little kid stuff. There's no magic. Magic isn't real. And then, you know, one hit of LSD later, it's like magic is real. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but, but it, it pointed, um, you know, not necessarily back to the dragon, but it pointed to the creative act as one of the most, imag- you know, one of the most magical things that is uh, relentless and always there and waiting for me. Um, it's like, you want some magic? Then just make something. Uh, mm. There it is over and over again. And um, and it just 
it seemed like again that like not that there weren't times that were really hard and and really crazy and that i didn't go through periods where i felt very lost but um there was like guardrails now all all, all of a sudden you know and that that carried me through all the way through the end of high school you know punk and hardcore really i mean music in general but punk and hardcore um were what sort of just kept me in a place of feeling like i had my people you know i had my mm-hmm. community i i i felt tapped in and it's odd that somehow you know drugs and and mainly psychedelics and cannabis um really somehow stayed pretty constant for me even being around you know there were there were a couple years there where most of my friends were were straight edge but i um yeah i i never let go of the my positive uh you know, impression of those experiences and how and how good they were for me. So I guess that that says a lot about just the actual, you know, just the the no bullshit, no filter, no stigma uh, experience of, of 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 those medicines for me at a very young age. I can, you know, I think that I had enough people telling me that they were bad and that I shouldn't be doing that and that they can make you crazy and all the other things that that you know as you just pointed out for some people they can be really destructive or they can be extremely confusing and um ill-timed and uh but for me they were they were yeah they were a guiding light in a lot of ways i think you know so many of us you know know, and in the hardcore scene specifically we're dealing with you know traumatic childhoods um specifically with drug addicts and alcoholics you know you know definitely for me in my household i never wanted to be around drugs because i never knew my parents to be sober maybe my dad once in a while my mother i've never seen my mother sober um my father you know has had his own struggles so you know i just lumped it all in together at the same time um that makes a lot of sense but but that said i you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, I, the, the point I wanted to make, you know, uh, with that as an aside, um, so many of us got into th- having that outlet from having those kind of traumatic experiences, whether that is, you know, a dysfunctional uh, household or, or dealing with, you know, bullying um, or just feeling, you know, left out for whatever reason, you know, of, whether that's some systematic discrimination or or some other reason mm-hmm. um and you know th- looking at the create looking at creative people and and the arts through the psychological lens that i've developed going through my own recovery you know so many of us are good at stuff not despite you know our mental illness it's like <laughs> this is what keeps us going you know mm. and even in you know when i look back at my television career and just knowing, you know, what childhood trauma is, every single person that functioned at a high level and worked really well was always dealing with something from the past. Like wow. no one, you know, was dealing no anyone that works that hard for, you know, it's not a ton of money, you know, even mm-hmm. people might think it is, but it's not, you know, depending on what wh- which, you know, part of television you're in, it's not. I was around a lot of people that were working for 
not a ton of money and working as hard as you possibly could to create these pieces, you know, and I know that that spark was still soothing that hurt, you know, and I, I really right. think, you know, everyone, so many people I talk to, so many patients I talk to, they're like, you know, we, we talk about all these different therapies. We talk about, you know, EMDR and, you know, MDMA therapy and meditation, nutrition, yada, yada. But really, we don't really talk enough about what that creativity really does for people. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's been, you know, it, it was my legs when I didn't feel like I had legs to stand on for many, many years mm -hmm. and continues to be in a lot of ways. Um, anytime something really difficult is going on in my life, it, uh, it still remains a pretty solid foundation that I, it's not, yeah, it's just not a, it's not just a profession. It's not just an interest. It's a way of life in, in many ways. So to pivot just a little bit, cause we're getting towards, uh, the end of our time here, something I, I, that you have done that I haven't talked to anybody else who has really experienced is, uh, I think you, it's called family integration. Oh, um, in, internal family systems, internal therapy. family systems therapy. I'm very interested in this is, would you share what this is in your experience with it? Yeah, totally. Um, so internal family systems is a modality of therapy that was, um, basically developed about 30, 30 to 35 years ago, I'm not exactly sure what year, but um, by a man named uh, Dick Schwartz. And he he was a, a family therapist who was specializing in uh, eating disorders and cutting. And um, mostly, yeah, most, most of his patients were of this um, persuasion. And he started taking this family family therapy approach to just the single patient and and seeing basically he had a, a few breakthroughs that allowed him to see that humans are are all multiple in that our in our psyche our ego is sort of made up of these parts and that's a, often what IFS is referred to parts work um and and the nucleus uh, at the core of every human being is capital S self, which is, you know, kind of when you feel naturally guided by compassion and creativity, uh, curiosity, uh, non-judgmental, just, you know, that energy and through this framework is called the, you know, the self and, you know, you're your goal is essentially to be self-led as, as much as possible in your life so that the parts of your ego are essentially, you know, they're there and they're never to be discarded. They're never seen as these things that we need to cut out of ourselves and get rid of um, or force out. They're to be accepted and integrated and essentially transformed. That's the, that's the, kind of the viewpoint of the modality, which I think is actually really beautiful and has been really effective for me. But essentially the way it works is you, you're doing kind of a meditative therapy, a meditative visualization 
you can do this on your own. You can also do it with a therapist. Um, there's many books out there that can teach you how to do parts work on yourself. Um, but, but what you're really doing is you're, you're pinpointing a point of tension, um, whether it's in your life, in your body, you do eventually want to target it where it's emanating from in a somatic way, kind of like, okay, I, I feel this tension around the idea of, um, of, of work. And I feel like on one part of me wants to be extremely lazy and just sort of Netflix it away and do nothing uh, because what the fuck is the point? And then the other part of me wants to just work all the time and is, you know, obsessed with my job and obsessed with, um, you know, maybe it's success or whatever. So you have these two parts that are polarized and, um, what you would do in parts work in IFS therapy is you, you essentially acknowledge that both of these parts of you have autonomy and they both have, uh, things that they want. And often they're, these are parts of you that have been developed over time and they've, you know, sometimes are born out of, uh, out of like a parental kind of voice, you know, something you learn when you're very young. Uh, you know, I did just frame it in a kind of productive way. I made it about work, but these are also parts, you know, say you have a part of you that wants to cut yourself that's also a part so you can have these very vulnerable parts that are born very early on in life usually when we're very vulnerable and uh so the idea behind parts work is to get to a place where you visualize this part and you're having a dialogue with it and very often i mean you can frame it however you want i think most people on the materialistic skeptical side would just say that this is a communication with a part of your subconscious, um, you know, and you, I have to say the first time I did it, I really didn't expect much. I was in a, in a group setting, uh, but sure enough, as I found myself in the visualization exercise and talking to a, a part of myself that is, um, is the rescuer i dubbed it you you kind of wind up giving them names sometimes they're really simple names like responsible and rebel or you know for me i found a part that i dubbed the rescuer which was obsessed with um helping others uh often to a fault and so i started dialogue dialoguing with this part and uh it started talking back you know and it was just really fascinating how doing this work within within 10 minutes i had uncovered the the origin of this part where it was born how it, how it came to be why i am so obsessed with this um you know why why this part seems to have such a hold on me and uh it had showed me something about myself that i in you know 38 years of therapy and self-reflection and psychedelics and everything you can imagine meditation i just never got to the bottom of and in this mm -hmm. very simple exercise this very simple um you know modality of therapy it uncovered it for me so i i started doing this because i, I started going to a therapist to do integration work pre-integration work before an ayahuasca journey and this is the modality that this therapist prefers to work in because it it, it actually is a very um, we naturally drift into 
this language of parts when we're in medicines, uh, especially MDMA, especially ayahuasca. We start to see these these parts of ourselves as having autonomy and having these um, identities, you know, these sub identities inside of ourselves. And I just was absolutely blown away by the power of it and the simplicity of it. And so I kind of just, I got obsessed with it, started reading all about it, started uh, watching all the, all the, the videos. Um, and uh, yeah, I continue to practice it now. And it's been one of the most healing forces in my life. I'd say, I'd say even more healing than most of my psychedelic journeys, most of my, um, you know, most of my regular talk therapy. This has uncovered things about things that were just so deep and so camouflaged. I think that's the key right there. I've never said that out loud. Camouflage these things about ourselves that um, can easily mask themselves as other things or being about something else, and then you know you just write it off as like, oh well that that's what that is. But this therapy is absolutely brilliant in getting to the core truth about a lot of the things that that we do in our lives the things that we you know that you know we all talk like this oh there's a part of me there's a part of me there's a part of me but we very often we we don't like to admit that we have all these polarizations internally and that's something that's just at the core of this modality and i've found it just to be so helpful so healing and I'm still, you know, still learning from it. And it, this is the this is the modality. If I'm if I'm not wrong, where people can also use it to heal family dysfunction, where you can kind of um, heal relationships, and you kind of spread your family out in a three dimensional plot in a room. Am I correct? So basically, what this therapy was born out of that. So that is a you know. You you can do that for sure. You can you can absolutely mentally visualize members of your family, put them into this um, space in your mind, and and have these conversations. And there is like um, the origin of IFS started um, basically as a mutated version of like Gestalt ther therapy, which is like the empty chair technique of like mm -hmm. you know oh there's this part of you that cuts yourself well let's put that part in the chair and let's talk to that part and you know give it autonomy and so there's like this combination of what actually happens when you have a ther you know a family in therapy for real they're all sitting in a room and they all have these dynamics and quite often it's usually like all right well let's get the kid talking because the kid's like you know the video camera in a lot of ways the mm -hmm. the, the kid's going to give us the straight juice of what's going on mostly but and then you see how the the family dynamic kind of ebb and flows around that but but yeah i i would say that what it really focuses on is taking that family dynamic and overlaying it on your on your psyche and seeing all the parts inside of you as a little internal family that's the real um that's the real kind of uh backbone of this but you can take this kind of work and do similar things um and i think you can kind of take ifs and it's very adaptable in that you can combine it with other therapies pretty seamlessly especially like emd EMDR and IFS are are pretty good bedfellows. They seem to be used quite often together these days. 
And I would also presume that, you know, um, sort of trying to heal generational trauma uh, is kind of where I can see this overlapping with the the model and the the example that you just gave. You know, if you have if you just have these um, relationships that you feel like are are damaged or need some kind of healing, maybe it, this could be used in conjunction to find um, forgiveness or acceptance. I could see that for sure. Yeah, what you're saying kind of reminded me a lot of my experience with EMDR, especially when you said so many of these are reactions, or I forget exactly what you said, but you know, things become camouflaged. You know, reactions, hurts yeah. become camouflaged. And that was so huge for me where, you know, as soon as I went, like the first session I did at EMDR, I went into, I don't know, whatever it was, something that was bothering me. And it just, I saw in three dimensional space in like these white, these like uh, white wireframes of just all of the horrible crap <laughs> that I dealt with as a child that like mm -hmm. I really didn't think was that big of a deal. But then once I saw the totality of it, once I saw the totality of the bullying, like you're describing, my parents being checked out, um, uh, just you know, I had a grade school teacher who committed committed who who took his own life, um, just violence, and then and then a lot. Something that I wasn't really expecting at all was like the sexual harassment that I dealt with as a very young man when I was you know 17, 18 in my first internships, and people were trying to hit on me and get me in a bed you know, stuff. I was like, all of those things. I was like, ah, whatever, no big deal. But in the totality of like dealing with paper cuts and, and some of them are more than paper cuts, but right. you know, you can see, oh wow, that's what this response is. This is why I panic because the totality of these things that I couldn't see individually, but in EMDR, it was like, I, you know, it was very much like a psychedelic experience. Just kind of zapped me into this three dimensional space. And you're like, oh, Okay, and then after mm -hmm. I uncamouflaged all that stuff, then I go into therapy, and it's like, yeah, yeah, this is what I have to work on. I'm not guessing anymore. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's funny that you that you say that. Like, and then I go into therapy um, because I, at the time when I when I discovered this, like I said, I was doing integration um, preparation for ayahuasca, and I I also had my my steady uh, talk therapist who is very familiar with IFS, but we don't really use it when we have our sessions. So it was really helpful to have these deep IFS sessions and then, then go take that to my, to my regular, um, you know, standby steady, uh, therapist and, and kind of suss them out even deeper and have these, you know, kind of integration sessions for my integration sessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty great for sure. I, yeah, I mean, it is, and I I didn't know that would happen. And I hear those that a lot from different patients who get a little bit of mastery in each one of these things. For mm -hmm. me, the biggest overlap was transcendental meditation and EMDR because you're doing all this processing work around you know feelings and traumatic experience in EMDR. And now I can do a lot of that at home, where you know I can yep. meditate on an upsetting feeling and really get to the bottom of it and, you know, resolve a lot of it most of the time now. It's rather remarkable um, that the EMDR kind of supercharged my meditation practice. Yeah, 
There, there's so many crisscross wires that we are unaware of until we really start untangling them and kind of tracing them back to the, the wall, you know? And mm -hmm. I, you know, something about IFS that's pretty remarkable is that they've done studies now with people. Uh, one example was uh, they did a study with a section of people that have r rheumatoid arthritis and they did a period of time of giving them IFS therapy, you know, once a week for a certain amount of time. And they showed like upwards of like 70% of them went into remission with their symptoms. And so there's this somatic connection to all of this stuff. And, um, and then they did the same thing with people who were um, basically had sleep disorders and they were resistant to sleep medication like say they had like insomnia and they would take sleep medication and the sleep medication wouldn't work on them and then they did you know a couple months of ifs therapy and all of a sudden the medic the medication started working it was like they mm -hmm. had some kind of like block from even allowing it to to uh to work and that probably some kind of a uh, psychological issue was spiking uh, adrenaline and who, who knows what else um, to keep them from even being able to just accept a, a response to a chemical in that way. So there, there's just so much to learn from this stuff. Uh, the, the, the mind body connection is so much deeper than most of us give it credit for. So I think it, for me, that's been the biggest uh, eye-opening experience to this is really seeing how there are days where when I check in, meditate, do some parts work with myself and feel some kind of somatic release of pain, whether it be, you know, back pain or stomach pain or a headache or something like that, where I see like, oh my God, like uh, I, this was bothering me so much. The stress of all of this was bothering me so much that I was actually having um, a somatic response to it that I wasn't even connecting. And then by by doing it you can see how you know uh mental health is also physical health you know we need to really uh hammer that one home for a lot of people yeah your brain is an organ you know it doesn't come from uh the great unknown um it's right there it's part of your body and and yeah if you have i mean it's really simple it doesn't have to be you don't have to create a grand theory to explain this stuff it's like if you had a traumatic experience as a child um, and your whole life, you've had a certain way to deal with that. And, you know, for me, you know, one of those ways is neuroticism, <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. so I'm always wound up. I'm, if someone's going to be, no one's going to get one on me. If no one's sneaking up behind me, you know, I grew up in New York city. No one's sneaking up behind me. I know where everything is. <sighs> I know where everyone is. I've got the lookout on what the next block is all, you know, and that hyper arousal. Oh, that's exhausting. It, it's not just a mental thing, you know, it's cortisol, it's adrenaline. And if you're living like that the whole time, it makes so much sense that you can't sleep or that a sleep medication wouldn't work because your body is constantly on looking for that threat. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm still, I'm still healing this stuff, but just like, like to bring it full circle, if you're bullied as a little kid and your little kid self does not know that you're not going to get killed. Your body doesn't know that you're not going to get killed. That's right. And you're in a place where 
you don't have a way to really make sense of those emotions and you don't have someone to talk to and it's it's still kind of fuzzy what happened or if it's your fault or if there's shame involved so as soon as we can really kind of as adults in recovery start to untangle some of that stuff see it for what it is and then feel the feelings that we've been pushing away pushing down avoiding you know with any of our addictions or distractions and we can finally do that yeah then the cortisol goes down then the adrenaline goes down then the the hyper arousal starts to go down and you have a different life you know and it's and your body acts different and and your mind acts different and there's this whole other space available you know you're not you're you're out of fight or flight finally Exactly. It's like dominoes. You know, once you clear that space, all of a sudden it's like you're making different decisions on a daily basis about what you're going to eat, you know, who you're going to hang out with, what you're going to do, how you're going to spend your time, when you're going to go to bed, all that stuff. And, you know, that really makes up the big picture. But until you kind of are able to get in that headspace where you get some relief from it for a moment and you see what what is possible, then often it's kind of like, well, what? Is it really going to change anything? Does it make any difference? Mm-hmm. And also, do I even have time to reflect like like in the way that I am right now? Like I need to survive, right. you know, survival. Uh, and and that's one thing we we haven't really touched on, but we touched on when you were on mine is just um, the crossover of of the system, you know, capitalism and and what it does to us and kind of what it the way we just don't really have an ability to prioritize a lot of this stuff, especially if you're just on your own trying to, trying to survive. For sure. The survival mechanism is huge. I just did a a podcast on EMDR from one of my Twitter followers who asked me, you know, this exact question. She's like, I know I have to do all this self care. I know it could really work for me, but I'm still in fight or flight all the time. And I just can't do it. Is it, is it is it possible that trauma therapy would help me? Do, and she had such insight. Like she, once once she just saw the pieces of, of the puzzle, she was like, "Oh, does it work like this?" And yes, that is exactly how it works for so many people. Is that if you can just you know resolve that ancient stuff, mm-hmm. bring it down, and then you can do all these other things. But I totally get the criticism. Like when I'm t- when I'm online talking about eating healthy, meditating, working out, and people are like, "Oh my god, what am I going to do? I can't do that." Like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I don't yeah. blame you. You think you can't do it. Like, but yeah, so there's, you know, ways you can go about it so you can get there. Yeah. Some, sometimes it really is like, um, it could be just a, a month, even for me. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of my shit together, but you know, these days I still can find myself in a, in a place where I'm like, all right, I, I can already tell that this is going to take some time to get out of this space that I'm in right now. And it's like, it's going to be this multi month long process of, all right, I have to get back on my eating better. I have to uh, really get disciplined about when I'm going to bed and when I'm waking up, I have to get better about my screen time and really lowering that because it's overstimulating me. I have to get better about making sure I'm meditating every day and I have to watch what I'm putting in my body, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, if you feel like you have to make all those changes overnight, like right now, it's just like, fuck that, whatever. All right. On till tomorrow, back to my hell. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame people. There's this Reddit called thanks. I'm cured, which like 
you know, I get it. Like where, where people, you know, they just post like bad, bad advice from the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And like, it's so cynical and sardonic and like, what a perfect misanthropic very often. But I'm like, what can I say? Like, I've been there. I've had all of these feelings. I would have had, you know, if I'm surprised I didn't invent the subreddit. Uh, So to everyone out there, and you're angry at me saying any of this stuff, I get it. But at the same time, this stuff can unravel and just know it's out there. Um, that's that's my job. <laughs> so, uh, so you've got this great podcast, Colin. Tell us about it. What uh, What's the pod? When's it coming out? Where can people get it? Sure. Uh, it's called The Cosmic Nod. It uh, I just released my my first sequence is what I'm calling them, and I'm kind of releasing them in this bingeable uh, five five to ten. Actually, I guess they're kind of almost like EPs or LPs, you know. Of course, um, so yeah, because of the stuff I do with music and art, I just figured, you know, why why make another hell trap for myself where I have to release something on a weekly or monthly basis? I'm gonna just drop them irregularly. And they're going to be groups. Um, so I just put out sequence one. It was six episodes. It's out now. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts. And it's just free form, long conversations with people I think are interesting or inspiring. Sometimes both. And uh, and uh, yeah, I, I really don't have an agenda behind it right now besides, um, you know, boosting people's signal that I think need boosting or, you know, me clamoring after people that I've always wanted to talk to um, and really just hoping that they'll they'll use this as an excuse to have a have a, a long, deep conversation with me. So that's what it's all about. Connection. And that tra- that strategy seemed to work because you were like charting on iTunes pretty quickly, which is remarkable for a new podcast. Yeah, so, I, I'm pretty sure it died real quick, um, but mm-hmm. that's cool. I mean, that's kind of like it showed me that there is some kind of um, there is something to the dropping a group of episodes at once uh, method. It seemed like it ha- it got some traction, whereas maybe it, it wouldn't have if I just dropped one. So, um, so yeah, you know, it was uh, there was a little bit of attention there, and I I feel like every day there's just uh, you know one other person is sending me some nice message saying like, oh, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. Thank you so much, and that really is, that's it. That's it for me. Um, this is like this total experiment for me. Um, my my bread and butter is music and art, and I really see podcasting as this uh, this just deeper deeper reason to connect you know it's like oh i have this platform all of a sudden people that normally you wouldn't feel comfortable being like can i have your phone number and call you and talk to you for Mm. an hour (laughs) you know um all of a sudden you have this uh reason why they'll do it and i think that those conversations for me are just so fulfilling and and really lead to um a deeper sense of of knowledge and and just makes me feel more connected to people in general. Yeah. And community. I mean, it is, I mean, this, this is a piece of, you know, the puzzle, like, I, you know, to bring it full circle again, when I got into hardcore and punk, like I was making zines all the time, Yeah, you know, and that was like during the time I was maybe most thriving in my life. And now, you know, this is kind of that, you know, people yeah. aren't sitting around reading black and white zines. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at the website of mentalhealthmedia.org, like it looks like a zine in color mm-hmm. um, from 
back in 1995. So yeah, we got to rebuild it. We got to rebuild it. Well, thank you so much, Colin. Um, Where can people, so people got the cosmic nod. Uh, Where else can people find you? Oh, they can find me. Just Google me. (laughs) Just Google Colin, C-O-L-I-N-C-I-R-C-A. And you uh, pick your platform of choice, your your port (laughs) of choice. Uh, I love to hear from people. I love to meet people. Um, I don't give a shit if you ever give me a dime, but I'd, I'd I'd love to have a chat. Love it. Thank you so much for your time, Colin. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. It was so fun. Cheers.